take your own advice. Like you have all these skills as a marketer. In theory, you know how to run ads, you know how to build an audience, you know how to do this stuff. You're growing revenue for other companies. Like, why don't you just do that for yourself? Or why don't you like you're growing the organic social following of some brand? Like, do that for yourself. Fractional is the show where you can learn from top consultants in AI, software engineering, growth, and design. In this episode, we talk to David Foliarmi. David is the VP of Marketing at Owner.com. At the time of recording, he was Refractional Chief Marketing Officer and Marketing Advisor for Series A and B startups. He's built and led marketing teams at companies big and small, from public companies like HubSpot and Electronic Arts, to venture-backed startups like OnDeck, Referral Candy, and App Annie. David has seen versions of the growth movie a few times, having driven growth and acquisition for products with millions of users, leading regional marketing teams, and working with founders at growth stage startups. In this episode, we talk about growth marketing advice for Series A and B founders, playing games of mastery and learning, what it takes to be a fractional CMO and marketer, and how to really build community. This is your co-founder from Swarm, Lex Goliato. Thanks for listening. Hey, Dave. Welcome to Fractional. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell us your story. My life story. So I am now doing the Fractional thing, and that's because I have a career where I've done a little bit of everything across a bunch of different industries. So I worked in B2B, B2C, small companies, big companies, and I found that companies today, like especially in the Series A, Series B range, they have a need for a marketing leader, but they're either not ready to hire a full-time like CMO or they have a bunch of junior marketing folks and they're missing that leadership layer that can translate a lot of what the company needs into marketing activities. So that's where I come in. I plug into somebody who's either embedded in the team or I work on a very specific project with them just to overall help them bridge that gap between we need marketing help. We're not ready for a full-time person, but we do need somebody to just make sure the whole system is stable and structured. Previous to this, I was working at a company called OnDeck, and before that, HubSpot. And yeah, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but basically, been around the block in terms of different industries and different startup sizes. So, with all those experiences, I can I can help a lot of companies. Uh, hopefully, with my with my insights and what I've learned before. I love it. I've been part of OnDeck, OnDeck Design um, number I think number two. <laughs> um, nice. I, I we use HubSpot. <laughs> <laughs> and you know um i think i think it's all great um so david the first thing i want to ask you is that i know you've been doing this just for for nine months right but you probably have some insights already what do you think fractional marketers typically get wrong there's just so many but i'll give you one that keeps coming up whenever people ask me like how to get started in this and it's a really weird thing to say to fractional marketers and it's basically like, take your own advice. So marketers, one of the things that we are trained to do is like, who is your ICP? What is your positioning? What's your messaging? Like th- those are all basic things you would do when you join a company, right? But when you try to apply it to yourself, it's suddenly like you can't do it. Like you don't want to niche down. You want to say everything to everyone. And you like want to customize your services for everybody because you just want to get revenue in the door. So the biggest thing is, if you're a marketer who has some experience, you already know a lot of these fundamental uh, strategies and approaches to marketing that are going to make you successful if you just apply it to yourself. Like one of the hardest things when you start off is like, who is my customer? And then 
Um, what are the things that resonate with them? Who's my, my ideal customer persona? And what online channels can I use to reach them? You know, a lot of those things are obvious when you're working in a company, you're doing it for somebody else. But when it comes time to take your own advice, for some reason, fractional marketers get confused. <laughs> it's like, just do the thing you already know how to do and you'll be fine. Well, anything that is, is that some sort of anxiety over there, or, you know, imposter Skin in the game. A lot of marketers, I think, have never like run the business. They've always been mm-hmm. from, they've always been like employees. And so it's much easier when it's not your baby to like, oh, like objective arm's length. It's like when you're giving your friend advice, it's much easier. But then when it comes time to take your own advice, it's like, oh, well, <laughs> wait a minute, I can't. So you're blinded by your own experience. But the thing with marketing is it's kind of a process. So just apply that same process to yourself. And the faster you realize that, um, the faster your trajectory is going to be as a fractional marketing person. This reminds me of uh, one of your articles where you write down um, the equation for career progression. And you said it's like a multiplier between business need, relationship capital, and technical ability. That's what playing the game looks like. And I want to relate it to like just the skin in the game stuff, right? Like in, in that scenario... There's not much skin in the, ga- in the game because you don't own, most of the time you don't own the company, right? But my real question is, what does playing the game look like for you, for you, you know, as a fractional CMO? Is this still the same equation? I think so. So one of the reasons I'm drawn to this type of work is because one of my core values is learning mastery, like chasing my curiosity. So if I were to think about how to express that, it makes more sense for me to do that as a consultant because then I can see multiple problem sets. I can work with multiple teams and my pattern recognition gets a lot faster. So for me, that's what playing the game is. So the game I'm playing is mastery and learning, chasing my curiosity. For some other people, playing the game could look like I want to make as much money as possible. And certainly being a fractional person can open that up because you effectively remove the ceiling on your income. When you have a full-time job, like your income is this, and maybe you'll get like a 5% raise every year. And if you have equity, whatever. But if you're a fractional person, in theory, you can work as hard as you want. And so you remove the ceiling on your income. So playing the game, to answer your question, is my personal game that I'm playing is mastery and, and learning. But that could mean a different thing for somebody else who could be playing a different game. In terms of mastery, right, how do you actively work on that yourself? I mean, being a fractional person, I can't, I can't not work on it. Because not only am I forced to solve problems for my clients, I have to solve problems for my business. Like, how do I continually make sure I'm getting pipeline I'm getting introduced to future potential partners. So there's always a new set of problems to be solved. And inherently, that creates an opportunity to build on your mastery. But that's in addition to my own like personal curiosity. I'm always reading stuff. I'm always writing stuff. And so those two things, when you combine them together, help me amplify my ability to chase that, that core value. I see you writing um, every day on LinkedIn. And I love it. <laughs> I'm a fan. <laughs> I Excellent. love the content. Um, what's your thinking there? What were the results so far? I don't know if that's how I would necessarily think about it in terms of results. Because I think if you overly optimize for results, it ends up in a kind of a, a funny, you, you end up in a funny mental space. I think the people who I look up to who are content creators, like their, their brain just has to produce content. Like you rewire your brain so that, production and creation is just part of your natural thing. I don't think I've gotten there yet, but I know people who can like post five times a day and they still have things left to say. You know what I mean? 
just because they've trained their brain in that way. So personally, again, going back to the mastering learning, I want to get to that point where I'm developing that muscle that it's so strong that I can just continue to publish. So for me, the result there is building that skill. But probably the question you're asking is like, why am I doing this for in terms of my fractional business? Well, those two things are inherently connected. If you just do, again, like the math of the uh, thinking about the marketing, like I, I need to be in front of my ICP. My ICP I know is on LinkedIn. So it just follows that I have to be visible on LinkedIn. So there's a lot of folks who don't want to post on LinkedIn because they don't want to put themselves out there or they are afraid of posting on social media. This goes again, like if you were a marketer advising yourself, you would say you have to do these things. You have to make sure that you're in front of your ICP. So in terms of the results, it is how I primarily generate my pipeline and how people find out about me. It's how we probably got connected. So this is a perfect example of that. This is a play. perfect result of what that. Yeah. So like I wouldn't be talking to you if I wasn't posting. But on the on the more longer term, long game view, the result I am striving for is just chasing that uh, core value of mastery and building the skill of publishing. What draws you to that? This, we're going to go a little bit of a tangent here away from fractional stuff. But it, since you asked the question, I'll tell you. So essentially, I think there's like six games you can play in your life. And so this comes from that, that framework that I've come up with. And it also informs how I've made a lot of my life decisions. Because I think that the way to win at life is to pick the right game to play and to avoid the games that you don't want to be playing. One of the games is mastery and learning, which is you have like this inherent need to just get better at something, even if you're not rich off it, if you're not famous as a result. So it's like people who want to be really good at chess, people who want to be good at martial arts. Like they just have this need to be building the skill and refining that craft. And I think that is inherent. Like some people just really want to do that and some people don't want to do that. So that's the game that I'm playing. The other five games, I'll go through them really quickly. We can dive in if you want, but let's go through them. So there's a money game, which is the kind of default game society makes you play. There's the altruism game, which is like, I want to build schools and developing countries. I want to work at a Gates Foundation or whatever. So um, mastery, money, altruism, influence. There is security and there's autonomy. So you can choose which game most aligns with your own person or personal core values. And that takes some introspection. But then that also gives you some ability to, to filter out what to focus on, what not to focus on. So for me, I've decided to focus on mastery and influence. And that informs a lot of the decisions that I make. What made you not choose the other games you just laid out? Yeah, so I think everybody inherently responds to certain types of games. So as I was saying those things, there's probably a couple there where you're like, oh, yeah, that's me. And some of them are like, oh, yeah, that's not me. So I think everybody has a different set of games that they inherently want to play. So I think it's, it's a matter of picking the ones that you're already naturally inclined to that make sense for you and then ignoring the others. So for me, mastery and, and influence are just interesting. Like money, yes, is interesting to me, but it's not my primary motivator. Like I know it's for me, my, my mentality is like it's going to come as a result of doing other stuff. The money will come. Whereas I know some people who are totally about money and they just view life as a like scoreboard they just want to win points. They don't even really like the money. They just like winning and they like amassing resources. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's none of those games are better than the other inherently. There's no good or bad game. Just which one's aligned with you. I love it. I think you're probably one of the most profound people I've talked to. <laughs> <laughs> so it takes a lot of introspection. It takes a lot of introspection. Yeah. Doing that introspection, what are the things that help? Being a fractional worker forces you to examine yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, are, is there anything that helped you in particular in doing that? Or is it just, you know, uh, ruminating 
in the shower. <laughs> well, like certain there came a point at some point in my career where I'm like, okay, I think I have enough skills that I'm not going to be on the street. Like I know enough, like I have a floor of quote unquote success that I'll have. And so that just made me think, okay, is this it? Like, do I just drag the spreadsheet? And kind of that's it until I'm 80 years old. What that made me realize is I have some level of freedom and privilege that I can choose the path that I want to play. And then I just wanted to be deliberate around that and make my moves more conscious choices. Because even if I make some missteps, at least it's like I was going there with an intention as opposed to just randomly doing things here and there. Because what I don't want to do is be 50 years old and feel like I didn't accomplish anything because I was trying to do everything. I was trying to win the money game and give back to my community and like get good at my job and travel the world. You know what I mean? Like if you don't end up choosing, you'll end up making a little progress in a lot of areas. And for me, that would have been very unsatisfying. So I'd rather make progress in the areas where I want to be consciously putting my attention and effort into because they are aligned with my core values. So once I realized that, it's like that removes a lot of anxiety and frustration around doors that can be closed or opportunities that can be closed because it gives me a lot more focus on where I want to be spending my limited time here on earth. So tell me about your marketing mastery. Is mm. it is that it? Is is you did you choose marketing um no. adjacent fields to uh do that or like tell tell me about I ended up just in I actually don't remember how I ended up in marketing. Just it was I mean one of the the weird things society forces you to do is to choose a life path at 17 18. Just like you were studying this in university and then like that's kind of your thing. I just got lucky that what I decided at that time was something I actually wanted to do. So marketing just became the thing. And I was like, it seemed like I was good at it. So I just kept building momentum from there. But what I'm really interested in is like business problems. So if you read between the lines of all my posts, one of the things I always advocate for is like, don't be a marketer, be a business person that knows marketing. Because I think that's a better way to have impact in your career. What's the so, difference? A marketer is like, oh yes, every problem is a SEO problem, Facebook ads, content marketing, like that's the primary lens you view things. A business person is like, how do we improve the PL? How do we make sure cash flow makes sense? What are the right investments? What are the different opportunity costs? Should I invest in marketing? Should I invest in sales? So it's a more holistic system level view as opposed to a program channel level view, which a lot of marketers can get stuck on. In shifting to that mindset, I've just been starting this for myself, right? Like I'm a product designer turned um, co-founder, and now focusing a little bit on growth, mm-hmm. right? And growth marketing for a seed stage startup. For people like me, what would be your advice? Yeah, you kind of have no other choice <laughs> given what you just told me. Like if you view marketing as the only tool in your toolbox, then you're going to end up with the situation I said to avoid. But because you're not a marketer and because you have a more varied background, I think by default, I would hope that your view is a wider perspective than somebody who's starting from a marketing background. So, okay, so to answer your question a bit more concretely, I would think more about the operation side of the business, like getting familiar with, okay, how much runway do we have? What is our cash burn? What's our operating model to make sure that we're growing? The thesis behind that, what do the numbers look like? So I think the closer you can get to a, a forecasting, modeling, quant world, uh, the closer you are to that business mindset. Not to say that the qualitative is not important. Of course, it definitely is. But I think that is what separates people who are like really good business operators from people who um, are like playing business. Like you're very comfortable with both sides of the quant and the qualitative because they Thank have you. a system. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you recently finished a stint as an interim like VP marketing at Spotdraft. I'm still doing it, but yeah. And you're trying to hire like a replacement yeah. for yourself. Can you walk us through like uh, your experience so far and what, what's the story behind your you know re- recent consulting yeah. gig? Uh, so Spotdraft is a classic company that I described, right? Uh, just raised a Series A, want to make sure that the marketing strategy and the go-to-market makes sense because typically the Series A company, you've proven some level of product market fit and now you're trying to de-risk the go-to-market. You're trying to figure out what is the path for us to make this repeatable and sustainable. So a marketing person with experience can shorten that learning curve a lot. So that's what I came in to do. So instead of them investing in 20,000 different things, which is what happens when you're a startup, you're just experimenting like crazy, right? Like what are the things we should not focus on? So I came in and help them refine that focus. And then uh, I'm not going to be there forever. And so part of my remit is to make sure that I'm replacing myself and helping them filter through candidates uh, to make sure that they have the right person in place who can carry forward the strategy, build the team, and then hopefully see them through the Series B and beyond. When you're thinking about marketing strategy, what do people, especially when working with you know co-founders, where do they commonly have mistakes in? Again, there's many, many answers there, but I'll give you one. Let's see where that takes us. It's very hard to be a founder without a marketing background and trying to figure out what marketing should look like because marketers like to post content online. And as a result, there's just so much advice. You're drowning in marketing advice. And it's very hard to know which best practices to listen to, what advice to follow, which case study to take stock in. So you kind of end up like trying everything. And if you do that, you end up doing nothing because you spread yourself super thin. So that's the primary mistake that I see people make. It's like, oh, I listened to this podcast over the weekend and they said they did this one thing. Let's just do that. But then your co-founder or somebody else be like, hey, I found this link from uh, Reforge or like Lenny's podcast or Lenny's blog that said they did this at DoorDash. Well, we should try this. Then your investor will say, oh, actually, this other portfolio company did this. Talk to this person. So now you're just like, what the hell do I do? So the solution there, it's not a super fast and easy solution, but the, the way to cut through a lot of this is to think about your business model and restrict your best practices and the things you listen to based around your business model. So if you're somebody who has like a $1,000 ACV product, you shouldn't really care what Salesforce is doing or what Salesforce did to grow because they have like a $100,000 ACV product. Think about who else is in your, your weight class and learn from them. So that's one way to reduce and sift through all the best practices is to just think about your own go-to-market, what's relevant, who is an archetype of your business model and learn from them. Because the, the problem is there's just so much advice out there and that's a really common strategy. That's a really common mistake that people make when we're thinking about marketing strategy in the early days. In thinking about your own weight class, um, what comes to mind is competitive analysis um, and seeing what adjacent um, competitors are doing uh, in relation to to marketing, right? Would you say that's... Not just competitors, but sense? similar business models, mm. similar price point per year, similar buyer's journey. So for example, if you're buying insurance, typically people would say that's a B2C purchase because you're buying it for yourself, right? But if you really just think about the buyer's journey, it's kind of like B2B because you read a bunch of stuff, you hear about, like you see a billboard, you go to the website, then you like fill out a form, somebody calls you, now this is a sales conversation. That's a B2B traditional purchase, right? So the go-to-market and the buyer's journey is very similar. So it's not just about who is your competitor in this space, but who has the similar buyer's journey, who's a similar go-to-market as you. 
And I think that's a more useful way to think about it because then you get more references to study from. Got it. That's really helpful. I have been reading through your LinkedIn work experiences. Are Which companies or which ones did you have the most fun at? They were all fun. And, and looking back, it's easy to say this because you can now see that you learned something at every stint. <laughs> like I <laughs> learned something okay. at every time and it was useful mm-hmm. for me even like for the ones that in hindsight were not that well run. Because if you have the mindset of what am I learning here? What can I extract out of this experience? You always end up on top. I, I've been in on deck, right? And the company has downsized and like it eliminated a lot mm-hmm. of um, their fellow fellowships. And what was that like for you as a as a marketing director? Where where you have you been through that journey when that was happening? Well, I was in on deck when that happened. So yes, I definitely have been in that journey. And I think that happened because it was a COVID was a an interesting time for startups. And I view on deck as being like a perfect fit for COVID. Like everybody's online, everybody wants to scale up, everybody was especially in tech, like well secure in their careers. And so they had things like L and D budget to spend on like leveling up and building communities. Once a lot of that went away because the macro had shifted, then it became very difficult to sustain that thesis. So it was interesting to be the marketing person because you saw the ups and the downs and the ups and the downs throughout that period. So it was a very interesting time for sure. How do you navigate that? Like as a, as a marketing person, because like, I, I would imagine the strategy just changes all the time mm. and you'd have to reorient your, your programming. E- even if it wasn't on deck, like that's just startups series A-ish. Because like mm. I said, you're, you're kind of de-risk go to market. Like you have some product market fit, you have customers, people who like you, hopefully a high-ish NPS. But the next step is now how do you build a repeatable model that you can get more of their ICP? And is there enough of your ICP out there? So to some degree, that's just a common series A, B problem that wasn't specific to on deck. So in terms of how to deal with it, it's just working through that process of hopefully the product team is iterating fast enough and the market isn't shifting too crazily that you can't find your bearings. So uh, it's, it's not like that's the only company in the world in history that's ever happened to. So it was more like, how do you just make sure that you are anchoring yourself so that you can see what's happening around you? And, you know, it didn't work out. But OnDeck is still around, still going strong with the fellowships they have kept. So um, they have done a good job of, of staying true to what is the the value that people are still willing to pay for and where they can add disproportionate impact. You talk about altruism, and I see that you had the community at the APAC Marketers Roundtable. Mm. Um, tell us how you view community and um, what's it like uh, doing it for marketers in terms of running it and uh, in Singapore, um, what's running like a marketing community like yeah. And what rituals or ceremonies do you sustain um, for that group? The big thing about that community in particular is APAC is a very tough market to be in because it's so fragmented. And so you're always looking for agencies. You're always looking for referrals. A lot of the playbook for companies to expand all throughout Southeast Asia and APAC is not yet written. Or it's only held by you know Oracle, Microsoft. Salesforce, and they're not going to be like sharing their secrets. So a lot of those people are with multinationals who are expanding in the region or startups are expanding. So uh, a big pull of it was people who wanted to trade those notes with each other. And I think that's a core part of a lot of communities. It's like, you, you need to be a core reason why you exist. 
especially in the world of marketing and tech, because there's just a zillion billion communities. So you really need to have a strong why that people keep wanting to come back to and there's high word of mouth inherently as a result of you solving some unmet need in the ecosystem you're trying to serve. So because the need is so strong, in fact, so I'm based in New York now, that community is still running somehow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because that That's need great. is so strong and there's no other competition. I think that is the, the core part of community. Communities are very easy to start, very hard to keep alive because anybody can spin up a Slack team, Circle, Telegram, Discord, anybody can do that. But once you have it live, it instantly is trying to die every day. <laughs> That's true. So you have to have a core reason you exist that people want to come back to without you having to send like email notifications or reminder emails. That's the hardest part of the community. So focus on the, the core need and the core problem you're trying to solve and make it so that it's uh, very compelling. Uh, yeah, and it can't be again. a corporate reason why you have the community. If the community exists to serve the company as a funnel, it's not going to work because the, like, why should I come back to that as a user, of the, as a member of the community? Harder have than you it implemented some of, some, some of those? Like, I mean, you've worked at EA and, you know, HubSpot too, and you obviously have communities there, right? Yeah, it's harder than it, it sounds. So with EA, it's like specific games have communities because people are attached to the game. They want to like trade tips with each other. So they'll keep coming back even though it's not moderated where there's no content. HubSpot is a bit different in that it's a huge company, first of all. And so there's like user groups and people want to uh, share notes and trade tips with each other. And there's like agencies who are incentivized to make sure those are going. So again, there's like a core need that they've found to keep people coming back. And you got to be honest with yourself if you are thinking about spinning up a community that there is a core need, recognizing that everybody's a part of a billion communities now and like chat groups. So why should you exist? Why do you deserve to exist? Why do, why do you deserve the attention of somebody who, again, is already a part of a million communities. You're constantly like churning out gold here, like David, like you're helping me <laughs> so much. <laughs> I asked like my co-founders earlier because I told them that I'm talking to you and I asked them for some questions. Ask him, what are his pain points? What are your biggest pain points in terms of being a fractional CMO, I guess? So I'm nine months into this. The things that are annoying to me are all the things around the backend plumbing, let's call it, contracting, invoicing, like setting up my LLC was kind of a pain. And I'm in the US now. And so I'm still not through the whole taxation cycle. I'm sure that's going to have in, introduced a lot of problems at some point or, or things that I should resolve that I'm not aware of, unknown unknowns. That's what's top of mind for me. Thankfully, I'm fortunate that like pipeline is not an issue. Whereas I imagine a lot of people starting out, that is their primary concern. Or how do you keep it going? How do you make sure that there's always new people you're introducing yourself to? Maybe down the road, I will have that concern and pain point a bit more. But right now, it's all like the back end stuff. Like, how do I just make sure I'm maximizing my time on the work as opposed to all the stuff around it? We have that conversation at uh, Swarm like <laughs> almost every day. <laughs> like the admin side of uh, being a fractional mm. um, like professional. And... Um, might I ask you, uh, what's your stack like? You know, like what's your tech stack like as a, you know, nothing, uh, nothing surprising. Are you talking about as a fractional person? Mm -hmm. PandaDoc, Google, Slack, Notion. I think that's probably it. The usuals. Yeah, nothing, <laughs> nothing surprising. You on your LinkedIn, you have this um, self-employed section, right? And you wrote down 
four columns. Like you have an interim role, uh, fractional consultant and advisor. You're the only person I've seen who did this. What's your thinking behind this? And um, to me, it looks like you were trying to segment like clients and like um, which ones you want to work with. But, yeah. Um, walk me through your... People have told me this is a terrible thinking. idea. People have told me they love this. So again, I'm early in this game, but that's this is where I've ended up with it. Essentially, when I talk to people who want to potentially work with me, one of the first questions is like, okay, like how do I work with you? Like, what does the engagement look like? So I made that as a way to give them kind of a menu and to walk them through how we could potentially work together. So that is the reason for that. I don't want to just have interim and fractional engagements only. I enjoy, again, going back to the core value mastery, I want to have like three to four to five clients that I'm working with because it allows me to level up in marketing much faster than if I was just working on one client. So I let them know that, hey, maybe you actually don't need a full-time or don't need a, a fractional CMO right now. You don't need a interim person. You just need somebody to get on a call with you like twice a month and sanity check your assumptions and like reply to your slacks and questions and everything on that. That's all you need. So I have an option for that. But sometimes they're like, no, we need you to help us to hire this person. There's five members on our team that need mentorship. Please give us a bit more of your time. Then I have an option for that. So that gives me a menu that I can give people. I like the idea of having menu. <laughs> Very great experience for uh, potential clients. In terms of mastery again, and uh, I know you, you mentioned a little bit about um, learning and reading. Is there any particular piece of content that you you like? Um, I mean, you you mentioned like Lenny's podcast. I don't know if you still listen to that or um, some other resource satisfies your curiosity and, and urge to learn. I think it's a trap to answer this question because you should just do more things. So the thing I posted today around like side hustles, like I learned more doing stuff and trying stuff than here's this really great blog post that like changed my life. So whenever people ask me for advice around like, what's your favorite book or whatever, I'm like, just like try something first because then the things that you need to learn will organically pop up and you'll be more incentivized to learn and retain those lessons. You know what I mean? Like when you're trying to solve real mm -hmm. problems where you have skin in the game, the lessons are going to embed themselves more deeply into your, your mind and how you work. So it's, it's a bit of a lateral answer to your question. Yeah. But that is generally how I like to advise people. Because marketers, like, we, okay, again, take your own advice. Like, you have all these skills as a marketer. In theory, you know how to run ads. You know how to build an audience. You know how to do this stuff. You're growing revenue for other companies. Like, why don't you just do that for yourself? Or why don't you, like, you're growing the organic social following of some brand. Like, do that for yourself. I think that's where more learning is going to be at. Just being more action-oriented and just do, do the work. And yes. the learnings come organically. Yes. Or you will face roadblocks and you will be very incentivized to solve those problems and get around those roadblocks. And so the learning has a purpose as opposed to, oh, this is a really good blog post. Let me save that in my mental swipe file for someday. Like, wouldn't it be better if you just had <laughs> something to solve in front of you? Then you find a solution. Then now you'll never forget it. I subscribe to that uh, stress-induced, just-in-time learning scenarios yeah. uh, most of the time and and i agree that uh i think it's just more effective in general it's come down to my final question david and i know my questions are pretty generic <laughs> um, for all the fractional marketers growth people and uh, marketing designers listening to you right now what's your advice <laughs> dude 
You're not making this easy, bro. Okay, let's say they're just starting out. You have to niche down and be ready to accept a level of discomfort in how much you have to niche. You're going to be tempted to take revenue where you can get it. And if maybe that's your situation, like you really need to, to get some cash in the bank, like that's fine. If you are in a place where you can afford, let's call it three to six months of, of, uh, of runway, you should be more committed to your niche than is comfortable because it's going to set you up for the long run. I can only give advice to somebody who's around my stage. So that's like starting out, right? I'm like six to nine months in. I haven't even crossed the one-year mark, so I'm not comfortable giving long-term advice. But the thing I would say to the six to nine months is like get good at context switching, build in like personal infrastructure to make sure that you can mentally turn off from one client to another. So you're going to have to learn a lot of processes, get really good at internal documentation, and have the discipline to like switch off and switch on. So for me personally, that means a lot of uh, writing. So in Notion, I have a very detailed setup. Or I know some people who just have like a, a notebook. So client A gets this notebook, client B gets this notebook, because context switching is starts to become a bottleneck um, when you start to take on more client load. What does your Notion doc look like? Like, is is it like a different workspace per client, or like a this yes. several pages of? In summary, yes. Stuff? Like, what's the objective? What are the key documents? Uh, recaps of meetings. That way, I can like easily switch back and forth because maybe. I did a project with them. Three months pass, and then I do another project with them. I want to be able to recontextualize very quickly. That's actually very useful advice, and I appreciate that from you, Dave. Thank you for surviving my. Everybody finds their own question. method for that, so I'm sure people will organically come to that solution. But the earlier you can get there, I think, the less pain you will experience. Awesome. Um, I will apply that advice myself. <laughs> and thank you so much, Dave, for being on Fractional. I appreciate you so much. For sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, this was useful. <laughs> <laughs>